You are listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 38. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City and your guide on these voyages of the fantastic. Every week, I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you updated on my life and my writing. Before we get to this week's story, let's take a look at my latest job hunt update. Yeah, I did a job. I got nothing but trouble since I did it, not to mention more than a few unkind words as regard to my character, so let me make this abundantly clear. I do the job. And then I get paid. This week I received the travel information for my job interview in Madison. I'll be flying out next Tuesday night, interviewing on Wednesday morning, and flying back home on Wednesday evening. In addition to my airline tickets, the company is also providing a hotel room, a rental car, and reimbursement for meals and airport parking. I'm very excited, because I've never had a prospective employer roll out the red carpet for me like this. I can't wait for Tuesday to get here. New pledges continue to come in on the Patreon feed. I am intensely grateful to all of you for your support, especially during this time when both Mel and I are unemployed. To make things even tougher, Mel's car broke down on Monday, which required a tow over the mountains to the Subaru dealer in Bozeman. But you guys continue to amaze us with your generosity and your support. We couldn't have made it through all of this without you. If you're a new Patreon supporter, please make sure to check back through my past posts on the Patreon page. You'll find three bonus stories there already, and another will be coming in the next week or so. You'll also find our first piece of bonus artwork, an illustration of Clean Up on Skyway 3, from metamorph artist Randall Fulton. And if you're a subscriber at the $15 a month level or higher, make sure to go download your free ebooks, To Walk in Shadow, Urban Legends, Making the Cut, and just released this week, Divine Intervention, Tales of Metamorph City, Volume 2. If you haven't made a pledge yet to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and check out the pledge levels and rewards. If you like what you're hearing on this show and you'd like to help me keep making it, sign up to make a pledge today. You just need a PayPal account or a credit card, and you can cancel whenever you like. Even a few dollars a month can really add up to make a big difference. Again, that's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 8 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began back in Episode 24, so make sure you're caught up before proceeding on to this week's spoiler-filled story recap. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has finally made contact with the woman she and her partner were instructed to find, the notorious heiress and socialite Mysteria Halloway. Misty sent Kate a personal invitation to meet her at the Hedonist Temple, where she promised to give Kate important information that she needed about her case. Misty also warned Kate that she was being watched by Misty's father, Count Xavier Halloway, the current Minister of Intelligence and the former head of the Conservative Party. In order to shake off the Count's surveillance, Kate met up with her friend Callie Linder at a street-level swoop race. Kate used her illusion magic to swap her appearance with Callie's in the middle of the race, leaving Kate free to go to her meeting with Misty while Callie pretended to be Kate for any observers that might be watching. 
Upon arriving at the temple, Kate was greeted by the priest called John, whom we previously met in the Metamore City novella The Cuckoo. John, it turns out, is Misty's half-brother. He and Misty had the same mother. Kate finds herself immediately and uncomfortably attracted to John, and based on his reaction to her, the feeling seems to be mutual. John took Kate to a darkened bedroom, where Misty was waiting inside. Misty told Kate that she and the other nobles had entered the inner rift zone in the Telvari Protectorate, a restricted military zone that frequently experiences dangerous surges of life-aspected mana. Misty said she wasn't sure what had happened to them. There was a bright flash of light, and they woke up on a shuttle home. Baron Kapler, whose family controls the Telvari Protectorate, had bribed the guards to let the young nobles out quietly. At this point, Misty turned on the light, revealing what the rift had done to her. The surge of life-aspected mana had mutated her into a terrifying, scaly red demoness. As you can see, detective, I have a problem, she said, and I think you might be the only one who can help me. Things Unseen A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 8 For a long moment, Kate stared in silence at the mutated body of Misty Holloway. Yes, she said at last, still staring. Yes, I can see where this could be a problem. Misty stretched her arms overhead, her tail rippling in serpentine curves. The great and mighty Count Halloway, she said, in a lofty air of proud nobility. Crusader for morality and virtue, champion of conservative values, proudly human in an age when sinful magic and sinister outsiders are corrupting the very bodies and souls of the next generation. She lowered her arms and gestured at herself. And his daughter, the demoness. Kate winced. Ouch. Any idea why this happened? Only that the universe has a sick sense of humor. I've been thumbing my nose at Daddy and his friends for years, trying to show everyone how stupid they were being. But I always knew there was a line. If he ever thought that I was beyond reforming, I'd be excoriated, just like John was. Kate frowned. Excoriated? Noble term, Misty said. Kinda out of fashion in recent centuries. Usually they just cut you off from the family funds until you repent or your parents die. Excoriation means you are legally stripped of your name, your rank, your titles, and your inheritance. Permanently. Literally, it means to flay the skin off of someone, which is how they did it in the old days. She looked down at the sleek, snakeskin hide that now covered her from head to toe. I wonder if they'll bring that back. Daddy was always big on tradition. I think the Majestrix would have something to say about that, Kate said dryly but I see the problem. Don't you think your father would want to help you? Try to change you back? We've tried, Misty said. Whatever the rift did to us, the changes went all the way down to our DNA, and it's resisting anything that tries to change us back. Damn, Kate murmured. What about the others? Did they turn into something like this, too? Everybody was different, Misty said. 
The changes all started while we were unconscious. Took a couple days to finish. We've all been in hiding since, wherever it was safe for us to go. Kate sighed and leaned back, resting her elbows on the bed. What a mess. Okay, what do you want me to do? You're an illusionist, Misty said, as if it were obvious. We need a way to disguise ourselves as the people we used to be. Let us get back to our lives. Kate considered that, doing a few rough calculations on the magic that was necessary. I can do that, she said. There are going to be limits, though. You can't wear illusion charms in skyports or anywhere else with high security. And other wizards are going to be able to tell you're wearing one. Might even be able to see through it or hex it down when you're in public. I understand, Misty said. Just get those amulets for us and I'll come back with you to daddy like everything's nice and normal again. She looked up at the ceiling, drew in a deep breath, and spoke on the exhale, sounding disgusted. I'll be a good, quiet, obedient daughter, staying out of the news and not making trouble for anybody. The church will have to find someone else to promote the cause. Damn it, I hate letting him win like this. Kate sat up again, looking at her closely. You really care about this hedonism thing, don't you? Pleasure is serious business, Misty said, deadpan. Then she smiled, a bittersweet expression that seemed to belong on a face far older than hers. I know how the press paints me, she said softly. The dits, the slut, the... Oh, what was that wonderful phrase? The most useless celebrity in the Empire. To be fair, Kate said, you've sort of given them a lot of ammunition. I know, Misty said, with a serene little nod of her head. I need to keep Daddy thinking that I'm this poor, silly girl who fell in with the wrong crowd. So, yes, I go on TV and say stupid shit that'll make the rounds with the late-night talk show hosts. Her eyes narrowed and her smile sharpened. But Daddy's getting old. And when I'm running House Halloway, we're going to show people the real power of the hedonist principle. Kate raised an eyebrow. Some people might say there's too much hedonism in the noble families already. But see, that's the problem. Misty leaned forward, gesturing with a closed fist. The moral crusaders like my father are ruining the Empire, Detective. Making more and more laws about what people can and can't do. Making people feel guilty about feeling good. Calling John and his kind demons when they're the purest expressions of the pleasure principle that the Creator gave us. People were meant to enjoy life. But Daddy and his friends won't be happy until everyone's as dried up and repressed as they are. She lifted her chin, proud defiance on her inhuman face. I care about the Empire, Detective. I care about human freedom. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that everyone has the chance to enjoy life the way they were meant to. Nobles and commoners both. Once again, Kate looked at her for a long moment. In a way, this change was more striking than the physical ones. I'm not saying I totally agree with you, she said slowly, but my respect for you just went up several thousand percent. Misty laughed and gestured at her head. <laughs> yeah, people are always surprised when they find out there's more in here than sex and fashion tips. Kate laughed too and rose to her feet. It'll take me a day to get the gents together for your illusion charm, and another day to do the enchantments. We'll do yours first, since your father's in the biggest hurry to find you. Once he's back to business as usual, we can worry about your friends. 
I'll need cash to pay for the reagents if you want to keep this hushed. Money's not a problem, Misty said. Just talk to John. He'll get you whatever you need. Good. I'll also need as much information as you can get me about the ways you all used to look. Pictures, video, dental records. The more you can give me, the more convincing I can make it. You'll have it by tomorrow night, Misty promised. I'll have it sent to your apartment, the same as before. She stood and bowed deeply, wobbling a little on her new legs. Thank you, Detective. If you come through for us on this, I'll owe you a big favor. Kate smiled sadly. I think the person you really owe is Bernard Travers. The rest of you were just massively inconvenienced by this little stunt. Travers died from it. Misty's expression immediately sobered. I know, she said softly. Please believe me, detective. We never thought that would happen to poor Bernie. She looked away, gritting her teeth. And then Baron Kapler fired him for helping us, the bastard. Bernie? That's a pretty informal way to think about the hired help, isn't it, Lady Halloway? Kate filed away the thought for future reference. Let me worry about Lord Kapler, she said. Once we get all the evidence and figure out exactly how Travers died, we'll decide whether this was just a tragic accident or something we need to prosecute. But in the meantime, you might find you'll sleep better if you do something to help Travers's heirs. Misty nodded, then brushed at her eyes, which were glistening. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Kate bowed and headed for the door. Before she left, she paused, remembering a dangling thread from one of her earlier lines of investigation. Oh, by the way, how many of these charms am I making? Who all went with you on this trip? Misty sniffed and dabbed at her muzzle with a tissue. There were five of us, plus Bernie. Zeke, Julie Matthias, me, Sevi Hinlasos, and Hal. Hal? Kate asked. As in Harold Reigns the second? Yeah, Misty said, frowning. You know him? Know of him. Been trying to get a hold of him, actually. You know where he is? Not at the moment. We all went into hiding, like I said. If I hear from him, I'll pass on the word. Why do you want to talk to him? Kate smiled. Just trying to clear up some details on the whole Kapler situation. Nothing to do with you. She bowed. Good night, Lady Halloway. I'd ask you not to leave town, but under the circumstances... Right, Misty said, rolling her eyes. I'll be happy to help the police clear things up once Daddy is mollified. Safe travels, Detective. Kate acknowledged this with a casual half-salute, then opened the door and exited to the hall. John the Incubus was standing there, arms crossed and looking satisfied. You heard all that, I take it? Kate asked, dryly. Pretty much, John admitted. He took the lead down the hallway back to the dressing room. Will 5,000 cover the supplies you need? Kate whistled. For that much, I can do them in mithril, make them last for years. Assuming I can find enough mithril. I know a guy, John said. I'll give you his number. Thanks. Kate gave John a sidelong glance. You know, your sister's pretty sharp. I'm impressed. I like to think she gets that from Mum's side of the family, John said stoutly. Kate snorted. No doubt. I also notice she's pretty heavily pro-incubus. Thinks that you're incarnations of the divine. A positive role model early in life can make a lasting impression, John said, smiling faintly. Uh-huh, Kate said. 
Don't get me wrong, I have a succubus for a landlady, and she's good people, so this isn't a prejudice thing. But what happens if she gets her way? Hedonism takes off, you guys start getting revered as holy creatures, and suddenly you're going to have women lining up around the block to partake of the divine. You'll be making baby inkies and suckies as fast as your followers will lay back for you. John's eyes glittered. So what's your point? My point is, Kate said, you need to feed on mortals to live, right? Feed on our life essence a little at a time. So if you get to be too successful, aren't you going to end up with a food shortage? John smiled. If we're that successful in spreading our ethos, detective, there will be plenty of new little humans running around as well. Lady Suspira used to be worshipped as the goddess of fertility, you know. Okay, Kate said. Still, big picture. Sooner or later, the planet's going to get crowded. What then? Then we'll go to the moon, John said. Or to the outer planets, colonize them. It's nothing your own people haven't thought of. He gave her a sly look. Or, maybe, your leaders will decide that it's time to put an end to that idiotic war in the dreamlands. Send in the humans with their tanks and their bombs and their magic, and burn all those battle-worn Adra and Daedra down to cinders. Then you can just march in and take all that endless living space for yourselves. And us, of course. Kate stopped in her tracks and stared at him, a slow chill running down her spine. That's the plan? You're going to take over human society so you can use us to end the war you escaped from? So Suspira can rule the human race by keeping us all happy and horny? John gave her that look of mild surprise again. Why, detective, I'm just imagining hypotheticals the same as you. Even if there were some kind of secret long-term plan for humanity, you don't think they'd tell me, do you? He turned, took a few more steps, then stopped and came back. He leaned in close to her, filling Kate's vision with his naked beauty, drowning her in that scent of raw, unrestrained masculinity. But you have to admit, he murmured, tracing a finger down the side of her face, it would be a very exhilarating world to live in, wouldn't it? Kate's heart pounded in her ears. John's lips hovered a breath away from hers. Her nipples tingled, and the space between her legs was hot and soaking wet. Her reckless side, the part of her that loved to dance with danger and throw caution to the wind, was screaming at her to wrap herself around this man and fucking enjoy the ride. It had been so long, and he was so gorgeous, and... And she was a cop with a job to do. John's sister was up to her eyeballs in something that had gotten a man killed something Kate didn't know the scope of yet. Even ignoring the intoxicating effect of John's sex appeal, which was practically a mind-altering drug all on its own, she couldn't let herself get emotionally involved with someone that close to the case. Doing so would break every standard of police ethics she had ever been taught. The cap would throw her off the case, and he'd be right to do it. So, as much as it pained her, and gods how it hurt to do it, she closed her mouth and turned her face away from John, head bowed. She looked down at the floor and stood very still. Stop, she whispered. Even doing that much took all the will she could muster. They froze like that for what seemed like an eternity, the predator in his prospective prey. Then John straightened, took a step back, 
raised his chin, and nodded. As you wish, ma'am. He turned and continued walking down the hall toward the dressing room. Kate took two full minutes to compose herself, before following at last on unsteady feet. Kate met Callie at their usual rendezvous point, a bar on the first Skyway level a few blocks east of Serenity Arms. The owner liked his privacy, and so did his customers, so the place was shielded from scrying. It was also small enough that Kate would have recognized any strangers inside. There were none, which meant it was safe for her and Callie to switch back. Probably. It was well after one, and the Friday night crowd had mostly thinned out by the time Kate walked in. She was back in her Kathleen Kittredge persona, but her racing suit still looked like Callie's. She slid onto a stool next to the runner and traded keys with her, then ended the glamours on their racing suits while keeping the one on her body intact. I was wondering if something happened to you, Callie said. Everything turn out okay with your informant? For now, Kate said, rubbing at her eyes. Gods, I'm tired. How'd you do in the race? The runner shrugged. Third place. I won a couple of one-on-ones after, though, so it wasn't a total loss. I still love your ride, by the way. Thanks. Kate took a drink, then added, I might have some courier work for you in the next couple days. High value, high discretion. You may have to bypass some security systems. Not a problem, Callie said easily. Gonna be expensive, though. The friendship discount only gets you so much. I know, Kate said. The client's good for it. I'll get you more details when the time comes. Suits me. Callie stood, drained her glass, and plunked down a few bills on the bar. All right, I'm off to bed. She looked Kate in the eyes, her expression abruptly serious. Watch your back on this one, kitty cat. The kind of people who want what you're asking for, they don't usually play nice. Kate smirked. What makes you think I don't know that? Maybe you do, Callie allowed. But ever since I left the race, I've been tailed by unmarked skimmers with imperial plates. Could be you've got more trouble than you realize. Even though she'd expected it, Kate still felt a little shiver at the words. Thanks for the warning. Good night, Cal. Night. The runner put on her helmet and walked out into the night. A few minutes later, Kate did likewise. She saw the unmarked skimmer trailing her back to the apartment, but she did her best to ignore it. She didn't have the energy to deal with Imperial stooges right now. She ran into Ms. Fallon in the hall as she passed the door to the landlady's parlor. The succubus was coming back from a patrol of her territory, and was almost unrecognizable. A hundred and ninety centimeters tall, dressed in black and red leather armor with the holy symbol of Suspira emblazoned across the chest. Ms. Fallon had told Kate once that she inherited the armor from her mother, who had served with special forces in the Dreamlands War. She carried a sword in a scabbard over one shoulder. Like the armor, it thrummed with arcane power at the edge of Kate's perceptions. Dried blood and ichor in various colors splattered the arms, legs, and torso of the armor. Busy night? Kate asked. The grim look on Miss Fallon's face spoke volumes. A minor border dispute with a new nest of hunters, she said. We reached an understanding. It's darker out there every year, Kate sighed. Miss Fallon's expression grew concerned. What's the matter, Kate? Melancholy isn't like you. 
Come inside. I was just about to use the spa, and I dare say you should do the same. Miss Fallon, all I need is a good night's sleep, Kate said. Which you clearly aren't going to get in your present condition, Miss Fallon said. Come on, dear. Inside with you now. Kate made a few more half-hearted protests, but Miss Fallon's mother Henning was a force of nature. She ushered Kate through a parlor and the bedroom beyond it to the extra-large bathroom at the back of the suite. Kate obediently shed her clothes, washed and rinsed herself in the shower stall, then climbed into the spa. She sank up to her neck in the hot, bubbling water and immediately decided that it had been a very good idea after all. Miss Fallon took a somewhat longer shower, presumably because she had something more offensive to wash off. When she came out of the shower, she looked like herself again, or at least the version of herself she wanted her clients to see, a fit and voluptuous middle-aged woman, a little shorter than Kate herself. She had her hair down, which was something Kate didn't see often. She was also nude, which Kate saw even less, but somehow it didn't bother her. Miss Fallon slid into the tub beside her and leaned back against one of the headrests, letting out a long, contented sigh. Soothes the aching bones, doesn't it? Kate closed her eyes and smiled. Mm-hmm. She felt a gentle hand stroke her brow, then run fingers through the hair above her ear. It was a soothing touch, full of genuine care and affection, and Kate found herself leaning into it like a cat having its head scratched. Miss Fallon continued, gently massaging Kate's scalp and temples, then working her way down to the base of her neck. The night's tension revealed itself in Kate's stiff, sore muscles. She let out a soft moan. Miss Fallon clucked her tongue. You poor thing. Come over here, sweetling, so I can reach you better. She pulled herself up to sit on the edge of the tub and guided Kate to sit on the seat in front of her. Kate did so without protest. She should have protested. Should have felt embarrassed, at least, as her landlady's legs squeezed her sides, as she felt the heat of Miss Fallon's most intimate parts close against her back. But somehow, she couldn't bring herself to feel the things her rational brain told her she ought to be feeling. I don't seem to be quite myself tonight, she thought dazedly. Man, Morgan will be sorry she missed this. Strong, confident hands gripped her shoulders and began to work loose the knots in her neck and back. Kate surrendered completely to the sensations, letting her mind drift aimlessly as Ms. Fallon did her miracle work. She lost all track of time. A blissful eternity later, she settled back against Ms. Fallon and laid her head on the woman's stomach, as limp as a rag doll. Ms. Fallon put her arms around Kate and held her there. Kate opened her eyes and gazed up dreamily at the older woman, with her soft brown eyes and gentle smile. She's so beautiful, Kate thought wonderingly. I hope I age that well when I get older. Miss Fallon reached up with one hand and caressed Kate's cheek fondly. Then she leaned forward, drew Kate's head down, and kissed her gently on the forehead. A tide of warm, sweet pleasure ran through Kate's mind and body, and the world went away under a blanket of soft, downy white.
And that's where we'll stop for this week, folks. Where are Zeke and the others? Will Misty's plan to help them be successful? And what's happening to Kate? The mystery continues next week. George Buchanan said, The novel is an event in consciousness. The novelist is inviting the reader to watch performance in his own brain. So let's pull back the curtain and check in with the props department. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 9,029 words this week, over the course of 16.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 547 words per hour. As of Saturday night, when I'm writing this report, I've gone 11 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of January, I wrote 15,678 words in 14 days, for an average of 1,120 words per day. I spent 23.5 hours writing in January, which is more than in May, July, or December. Compared to December, my word count increased by 6%, and my time spent writing increased by 29%. I made good progress this week on The Lost and the Least. I'm about halfway into Chapter 17, and my running word count is just shy of 59,000 words. Most of the important pieces are now on the board, and the central drama of the story is beginning to reveal itself. It's a fun and tricky place in the story, and I'm glad I have the ability to put in some extra time right now in the writing. Until I have a job again, I intend to make the most of it. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.